Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Wednesday, August the 24th, 2022. Today, we're going to be talking about an eternal subject, one of the great tragedies in world history, a question how the Holocaust will ever end or how it has ended or how it will end. Um, we've done many shows on the Holocaust. It doesn't seem as if it's ending, at least in terms of its memory. We did one with Judy Battalion recently, a wonderful writer, tremendous conversationist as well. She has a book out, The Light of Days, about female resistance fighters to Hitler's ghettos. Um, we did a conversation a couple of years ago with the Holocaust scholar, Win Wendy Lauer, uh, historian of uh, the Holocaust, and particularly a historian of one particular photograph. Uh, she wrote about it in The Ravine. It's a photograph of a killing of a woman and a child uh, in uh, in the Ukraine. Uh, so many other stories. We, we've done a show with Dara Horn. Uh, she has a highly polemical, intriguing book out, People Love Dead Jews, reports from a haunted present, a book how we've got it all wrong, I think, in some ways, according to Dara, that we're remembering the wrong people. We're remembering the Anne Franks when we should be remembering a very different kind of person. Holocaust, of course, is never ending. We did a show with the Dutch journalist David de Jong on how Nazi billionaires remain in charge in Germany. Very troubling book. Um, uh, even it's as I was preparing for this show, I got a, an email about a Jewish uh, museum in, in San Francisco doing a show about a, uh, a, a puppeteer, Osnowitz, uh, family a puppet family's history, remembering the Holocaust, I think, and remembering Nazis in terms of puppets. This is a conversation that we will continue to have, I think, forever. Uh, the conversation today is with um, Linda Kinsler. She has a new book out, Come to This Court and Cry How the Holocaust Ends. Linda I think is part of a, a, a new generation, a younger generation, very much a, in some ways a female generation like uh, Judy Battalion of people coming to this terrible, um, terrible story anew with new angles, new perspectives, new questions, new answers. She's joining us from Washington, D.C. Linda, welcome. How, how did you come to this story of the Holocaust. Your your family background's pretty interesting, kind of mixed, to use a, a euphemism. Yes. Uh, well, first of all, thank you for having me on and for talking about the book with me. Um, I will say that, you know, basically I came to this, I was researching my own family history. My mother's side um, are Soviet Jews, largely from Ukraine some of whom perished at Babin Yar, which is the largest Holocaust killing site in Eastern Europe. Um, and then they subsequently moved to Riga, Latvia after the war. My father's side are Latvians um, and had lived in Latvia for many years. And my paternal grandfather 
disappeared after World War II in 1949. We never really knew much about him. Um, and later I found out that he had belonged to a killing unit that was known as the RIS Commando, which was um, kind of a subsidiary of the German SD. Um, and not only that, but he subsequently switched sides and um, began reporting to the KGB at some point. And so after I knew those basic facts, I kind of dove in and started poking around. And that is how I ultimately discovered the story around which my book revolves. How'd your parents meet? Um, they met in Riga, you know, it was um, in the 70s and um, this kind of, you know, still this kind of post-war jubilant time. Um, I don't know. So if they grew up, both your parents grew up in Riga. Correct. Yes. Yeah. And you're, uh, and then when did they come to the U.S.? Or did they come? Yeah, yeah, they came to the U.S. They came in 1988. So they came after the collapse of communism. They didn't want to stay given the independence of Latvia? So actually, they came before. Um, it only collapsed in 1991. And they, you know, obviously no one expected the collapse to occur. Um, even a few years right before the fact, it was this period of um, thaw, of reform, of perestroika, of course. And basically, there was a period, you know, 87, 88, when the United States um, and other countries began allowing uh, Soviet Jews to leave the USSR. And that was the moment when my family took the opportunity to leave. But your father wasn't Jewish. Yes, but he left with my mother and my sister. So as a Jewish family, they were allowed to leave. What kind of conversations did your parents have? It must have been awkward, uncomfortable, weird. Although, again, it's not unusual to have marriages of very different political, cultural backgrounds in that part of the world. Did they ever or have they ever talked about this? I mean, of course, of course. And I think, um, you know... I can only speak to this to a limited degree, having really not been there. I can say that um, it was not, it was an unusual, you know, match, of course. And to Probably the not that, uh, sorry to jump in, Linda, probably in Riga after the war, not that unusual, although yeah. most of the Jews had been killed. Right. I mean, the well, I mean, I think you have multiple things going on. Um, a large population of, not a large population, but there were Latvian Jews who did manage to survive, some of whom um, fought in a very famous Soviet battalion against the Germans. And there were also Jews who came to Latvia after the war, like my mother's parents, uh, from other parts of the Soviet Union. So it's all about memory and uh the promotion for your book, uh, it's described, and the book has been acclaimed, by the way, congratulations, a critical examination about the nature of memory and justice when revisionism, ultranationalism, and denialism makes it feel as if history is slipping away from under our feet. Is history really slip? It, it's, it's an odd metaphor. I know you didn't write that, but what does that mean, <laughs> history slipping away from under our feet? Right, right. Well, of course, it is a reference to the ways in which, you know, we have this desire for, I think, like forensically clean, clear answers to exactly what occurred in the past. 
And of course, you know, we cannot prove things. And yet we did want to so much. So we mobilize these kinds of legal logics. A lot of what my book is about is about how you see in various court cases throughout Eastern Europe, um, prosecutors taking what we would consider to be very well established understandings of what happened in the past, in this case, in the Holocaust, uh, and kind of subjecting them to logic that makes them crumble and makes the conclusions that historians would take as a matter of course seem not at all evident to lawyers. Where does your title come from? The very famous words, come to this court and cry. Yes, yes. And it was one of these titles, you know, the book names itself. So um, one of the stories that my book, I guess should say the central story of my book, in addition to that of my grandfather, is about this man named Herbert Zuckers, who was a very famous uh, Latvian aviator before the war. He was known as the Latvian Lindbergh and who during World War yeah, II... Which is, um, which adds a certain amount of political suggestivity, if there's such a word, given that Lindbergh wasn't exactly the cleanest of figures. Absolutely. Right. And so during World War II, he joined the same commando as my grandfather is known to have been a part of, the RS commando. And after the war, he escaped with his family to South America. He did not take a pseudonym. He lived openly. He let newspapers know where he was. And in 1965, Mossad, the Israeli security agency, sent one of the same agents who had kidnapped Adolf Eichmann in 1960 back to South America with a new target. And that target was Zuckers. And the mission, according to Mossad, was to kill him, not to kidnap him and bring him to trial, although that is somewhat you know, up for debate. But when they killed him, they left a folder on Zuckers' body. They murdered him in Uruguay because as one... Um, Uruguayan lawyer put it to me, it's easier to get away with murder in Uruguay than in other places. And they left a folder on his body and in that folder was a, the closing speech of Sir Hartley Shawcross, who was the chief British prosecutor at Nuremberg. And the speech focused on crimes that had been committed upon the Baltic states uh, during the Holocaust and also what is currently Ukraine. And the closing line of that speech is where the title comes from. Shawcross said to the judges, he said, Imagine that all of mankind stands before you bedraggled after so many years of war and comes to this court and cries, these are our laws, let them prevail. And so that is why the title is Come to This Court and Cry, a reminder of what it would mean to let our laws prevail and the different forms of justice that we might attain. So this man, Sukkos, was... Uh, assassinated or brought to justice, depending, I guess, what language you use by Mossad. But he's been acclaimed in um, in, in Latvia. I mean, I was looking at your book and some stuff on Wikipedia. There have even been a musical made about him. How is he treated in Latvia, in independent Latvia today? Yeah, so um, I will also say the musical, which is, you know, a really unfortunate cultural artifact, uh, is the subject of one of the chapters of my book. Um, you know, he's, I wouldn't say he's acclaimed, but he's certainly well known. I think you have this phenomenon in 
many countries that are still relatively new to the experience of independence and democracy, that they have to reach back into these past for these figures to try to rehabilitate them as national heroes. And that's what's happening with Tsukurs. He's been the subject of you know, multiple novels, a musical, as you said, some documentary film treatments, museum exhibitions. And it's not to say, you know, that he is a national hero. It's just to say, once you have all of these cultural artifacts that want to claim him as a hero and not as a criminal, um, you do kind of have this cult of personality that's emerging or even just a shadow of a doubt over what we know for a fact is that his, he participated to some extent in war crimes. Linda, the review of your book in Jewish Currents, um, which again was extremely positive, uh, headlines an unsolvable Rubik's Cube. Do you think, again, you, you didn't even write the review, let alone choose the headline, but is that the right way to describe some of these dilemmas of memory of as a Rubik's Cube, which are very hard to solve? I mean, you said at the beginning that we tend to want to think of, remember the Holocaust in terms of very vivid blacks and whites, but it's never going to be a Rubik's Cube, isn't it, in terms of making sense of it? Yeah, and so by that phrase, I meant mostly the history of um, these, you know, the particular historical experience in of Eastern European countries, um, and the reason like you would only have an unsolvable Rubik's cube if part of the cube had been removed such that it cannot be solved. Right. But then it wouldn't be a Rubik's cube. It'd be something else. Well, a deformed Rubik's cube, for yeah. instance, you know. Um, and or I an think... un-Rubik cube. <laughs> right. And so I think that's an apt metaphor here because it's not just that, you know, it's difficult or complicated. It's also that part of the documentation has been, you know, destroyed or made inaccessible. A bunch of things were removed to Moscow when the Soviets fled. Um, and the artifacts that they left behind, they left all of these KGB cards behind in the former KGB headquarters in literal bags of like little index cards with people's names and agent numbers on them. And we don't know why those bags in particular were left behind, if they were plants, there's all these different theories about them. So it's just to say, you know, we don't have all the information and that makes the job that much more difficult. And additionally, you know, it's not as if we don't have evidence as you're saying, you know, we have plenty of testimonies and interrogation records and documents that tell us what happened. But because of the realities of this contemporary world in which you know, you have legal systems that are still working themselves out. They can't trust necessarily what came before. And so you do, I felt during the reporting process that at certain points, you do feel like the rug is being pulled out from under you because you don't know what you can trust. What are the, the great issues now in terms of remembering, in terms of the Holocaust? What are the things that concern you that you wanted to remind people about in this new book? come to this court and cry how the Holocaust ends. You want, I guess, in a way, maybe the memory to end in the sense uh, that we can agree at least on the facts. What are the facts that are being pulled from under our feet? Yeah, I mean, I think I what was most important to me was to underscore, you know, 
what many people have been for a long time expressing anxiety and concern over the fact that we are now in a moment when this event is passing from memory to history, when the last people who were there in person and who can tell us what they saw with their own eyes are no longer with us. Um, and that carries with it extreme ethical concerns. Um, and what I wanted to get across was the fact like in this transition moment, we need to be really careful about what we're preserving, how we're approaching this and let it transition, let it make this transition from an event that can be actively litigated to a historical event. And what's happening now is that we see, you know, in Poland, in Latvia, in Lithuania, um, that historians who are making very well-reasoned, supported claims about the facts, as you said, are finding themselves the subject of legal claims that say, no, you can't make that claim because you're basing it on survivor testimony when the survivor themselves is no longer alive. Um, so it's an epistemological problem, you know, on the face of it, but I think it's a very, very deep moral problem you know, at its heart. It's a problem of memory and history and how we collectively decide, okay, this is what we know and let's move on. Uh, you mentioned Poland, you wrote a piece, The Right to a History Without Lies, which addresses the current conversation or debate or troubles in Poland about remembering. What is it about Poland that's particularly troubling, Linda? Yes, well, that particular case was, um, against two very prominent historians who um, had, you know, told the story Jan of- Jan Grabowski and Barbara Engelking. Yes. So the story they were telling had to do with the collaboration of a Polish mayor. And um, it was two different books. And the person who had given the testimony about his collaboration had passed away several years ago. And there are laws in Poland that ban uh, the suggestion that Polish, the Polish nation um, worked with the Nazis to perpetrate the Holocaust. You know, you can never say, you have to always say occupied Poland, which is of course true. Um, but the fact is that in their desire to protect against any allegations of collaborationism, the government has been supporting a policy of obfuscation and erasure. And I will also say, you know, I just found out a couple few couple days ago that the same strategy, excuse me, the same strategy has been attempted in U.S. courts. So it's not by any means limited to Poland. And most interestingly by using the same legal strategy, they persuaded a German newspaper to alter the claims in their newspaper. So, you know, on, when we talk about these things happening in um, different parts of the world, they're not isolated. You know, they're by no means confined to these borders, which is why I think it's doubly, triply important to understand what is at stake here. And what is at stake is the facts. You know, it's what we understand, what we can say about what we know. But these never get resolved, Linda, do we? I mean, we've done many, many shows on keen on on the settling colonization of North America. And it's, if anything, it's a bigger debate today in terms, obviously, of slavery and the treatment of the indigenous people and the role of the Europeans and justice and injustice, and murder and appropriation of land today as, as it was two or 300 years ago, probably more so today. Isn't that going to be the history of the Holocaust, that the further forward we move, the more problematic, the more controversial, and that's not necessarily 
a bad thing. When I was growing up in London in the 1960s and 70s, there wasn't a great deal of interest in the history of the Holocaust. It was almost settled. And right. now it's much less settled, which in my view actually isn't necessarily a bad thing because you've got the Polish take, the North American take, the feminist take, and and and, and so on and so forth. Right, right. And of course, I mean, I think, you know, you're pointing to a really interesting phenomenon when you say it's less settled. Um, and at one point, in one sense, because as you said, we it's very new that we are having all of these narratives emerge. And so after they emerge, they can also be debated and undermined. And I think the place for all of these debates is to, to happen is in the realm of history um, in academia. I do not think that the place for these debates to play out is in the courts, right? And so that's what I was really trying to zero in on. Um, and I think you're right that of course it's, and I don't mean, you know, it's not going to end. By the subtitle, it's, and I say in this in the prologue, I say it's not a prescription by any means, nor would I ever want it to be, you know, God forbid. What I do want to say is that this is a warning. Um, it was meant to call attention to this very subtle, but I think very pernicious form of erasure and revisionism, which I think jeopardizes how, as you say, we will continue to discuss this for years and years and years. What I would like to see is for those discussions to be constructive rather than relitigating um, facts and testimonies that we prize and that were so hard won. You know, we spend so much time preserving these testimonies and we have yet to really reckon with the fact that we don't know what they're for. We don't know how to preserve them when the people who gave them are no longer with us, you know? Right. Um, let, let's using the, the Polish example. I don't think, I'm not defending the Polish government, but the, the Polish government doesn't deny the Holocaust itself or the millions of people that were killed by the Nazis. Uh, and the moral or other responsibility of the Poles during the war is never going to get resolved, ever. And in fact, as you're suggesting, uh, it's going to become more and more ir irresolvable different generations. I mean, look how historians still remain divided over the causes and outcome of the French Revolution. So I just don't see how this stuff ever gets resolved. Certainly. I mean, I think, you know, I don't know that we can say it's going to become more contested. I think what I would like to see, and I think the reason why you have these laws in Poland is that you don't have a national consensus about what actually occurred, you know? And, you know, you're right when you say that the nature of the collaboration will always be the subject of debate. However, I think what we're seeing in Ukraine is that you can, it's um, really important to nation building, to soft power, to cohesion, to have a sense of what actually happened and that the new generation of people who grew up after 1991, who don't have memory of the Soviet period and the long history of suppression um, of the Holocaust that was prominent during that time, really actually want the facts. And that includes the story of their own nation's collaborationism. And what I will also say... Which is, which is in itself, I'm, I'm not equipped to, to, to comment on whether that or not is true, but the idea of a nation collaborating with the Nazis in the Latvian case is is extremely debatable. I mean, there were some who did and some who didn't, surely. Yes, of course. Um, yeah, but I think that, you know, you can 
certainly focus on what the nature of that was, you know? You can, I mean, it depends on your bias. I mean, you can, you can focus on, on that, or you can focus on the, the Latvians who resisted, who fought against uh, the Germans. I just don't see how this ever gets, I mean, for better or worse, it's not really a criticism. I just don't see how it ever gets resolved. Yeah, I mean, I'm not disagreeing with you in that sense. I think it's more important to think about what stories we tell about these things. You know, as what about said. the Ukraine? You had an interesting piece uh, in the New York Times recently. Who will remember the horrors of Ukraine, given the current war in Ukraine? Are there similarities? You've you've written about Babi Yar, which was a particular Nazi horror in the Ukraine. Um, are there similarities between what's happening in the Ukraine today and what happened in the Second World War, particularly in the context of memory and the mm -hmm. denial of facts? Yes, I mean, I think, you know, the the case that I make in the book is not that is, you know, not just that genocide is the destruction of a people, you know, that it's also the destruction of their culture and of their very ability to prove their own deaths. Um, which is, you know, inspired by the literary scholar Mark Nichanian, who wrote about the Armenian genocide. And I think, you know, if you ask any Ukrainian, is what is being perpetrated on their territory a genocide, they will say yes. Um, whether historians agree with them is kind of, you know... Well, they would. I mean, because that, that's... Depends on who you ask, certainly. I mean, I think that... But that doesn't mean it is genocide, just because they say it is. Right. Yeah. No, I think it will be debated. I think, um, but you asked if there are similarities and I think that. Well, I mean, not so much in the numbers of killings and whether or not we can define it as another Holocaust, as a genocide, but in terms of memory. Yeah. I mean, I think part of memory is the memory of a nation. I mean, it's the architectural treasures. It's the art, art, that's the museums, it's the sculptures, you know, it's, I think we can't begin to understand what is being lost. And so, you know, we can't really understand how this war will be encoded in memory. You know, the one thing we know is that it's going to be, if, if the last eight years are any um, guide, unfortunately, that it's going to be a long and hard road for the Ukrainians to keep the attention of the rest of the world, you know? Um, so we don't know how this will play out. And I think that Ukraine is marshalling its very, very strong national memory of resistance to kind of inspire their soldiers. You know, that's why you see Taras Shevchenko quotes tattooed on the arms of Ukrainian soldiers and on flags and on tanks, you know? I mean, it seems as if we remember, it's the victors remember, the, the losers don't. We did a show yesterday with Sinclair Mackay, who's just written a book, History of Berlin, and he was reminding me, and I'd kind of forgotten about it, about when the Soviets came to Berlin in particular at the end of the Second World War, they organized essentially mass rape of the entire German female population. This is not something that's particularly well remembered. We don't choose to remember it because of the nature of the Second World War. Do we have to accept, perhaps, Linda, that memories are about winners and losers and that the winners choose the memories and the losers forget, for better or worse? And that's how the cookie crumbles when it comes to these things? I mean, I certainly wouldn't say that. I think that 
first of all, there's really interesting moments in history of when the winners decided to forget. Um, and that's actually one of the more interesting political mm. moves. Like when? When they choose to forget what they want to forget, right? Yeah, and also for the kind of sake of political cohesion, I mean, the first example of an amnesty happens in 403 BC when the Athenians come together and swear an oath never to remember the crimes that were committed amongst themselves during the oligarchy. And that became the template for several, like these, you know, oaths of forgetting that continued for centuries. Um, so I don't think that's, we can say that, you know, in such a kind of neat way. I do think, you know, what we were gesturing to earlier about contestation and continuation of these debates is precisely when you have different sides reclaiming memory, right? That's the thing about it. If, you know, it doesn't go away, it can always be marshaled. And I think as long as we're attuned to the different ways that it can kind of hold sway on us or not, you know, I don't think it's um, always kind of politically productive in the same way. So I do think that's one of the biggest conversations that we're going to be having over the next several years is what do we do with these memories? What do we do with all and with our memory culture, as you were saying, you know? Right. And that's why I, I think your book is, is so important and why having you around is so important. You, you had an interesting piece um, in LitHub this week, uh, the history of Riga's little Nuremberg trial. And I was looking through it, some featured stuff was about the Soviets arriving, wanting to take their own kind of revenge. Soviets, of course, arriving after the Germans left. Right. Uh, well before the war was over, they began putting Nazi collaborators and officers on trial. The trial had been carefully choreographed to signal the change in political regime, a sign that the Soviets had returned to Riga and were there to stay. You have this strong uh, background in, in Riga, in, in Latvia. Your parents are both from there. You've written this book about it. How would you like all this to be remembered in Riga and Latvia? I know that's a hard question, but maybe a headline. What, what, what needs to be remembered and what needs to be forgotten in such a complicated place as Latvia or on the, the borderlands or what Tim Schneider called the, the bloodlands of Eastern Europe? Right, right. I mean, I think, you know, one of the beauties I end of this place, I, you know, think that Latvia is an amazing country. I think that Ukraine is an amazing country and I cannot wait to see what this new generation does now that they're in political power. But I think all of these nations they are at the moment when you need to have a public understanding of what the nature of collaborationism was and not and resistance, you know, and you need public stories that put those two stories together you know, resistance and otherwise, you know, victimhood and perpetration, to understand that it was complex and to find a way of illustrating that to the public in a way that they can remember and internalize without, you know, reacting defensively um, in various ways. And I think that's one of the hardest things that we can do. And we have to do it. It's really hard. And it's particularly hard, I think, as a nonfiction writer. You did a review of Leah Upi's book, Free, Coming of Age at the End of History, which deals with Albania and the crimes against humanity perpetrated by that regime. Leah was on my show, actually, last year. It's a wonderful book, like yours, very different 
kind yeah. of book, but in some ways about justice and injustice. Mm-hmm. Um, her book, Free a Child and a History at the End, uh, a child, um, Free a Child and a Country at the End of History, manages to untangle in a non-fictional way the complexity of Albania because it sees Albania and the Hoxha regime from the perspective of a 12-year-old girl. When you think of the Holocaust, in my mind, the best books are, you know, Gunter Grass, for example, who writes about the Nazis from the point of view of a young boy. What are the responsibilities and the limitations of a non-fiction writer like yourself um, over a fictional writer like Grass or like so many other people who have written about the Holocaust in particular? Yeah, it's a great question. And I think that, you know, at some points I was really envious of fiction writers because obviously the standards of fact-checking are different, you know, when you have a fiction. There are no fact-checking. You make stuff up. Well, to some, you know, you still have to say, you can't say a mountain is in a different country. That kind of stuff has to be fact-checked. But I do think that, you know, the primary obligation of a nonfiction writer is to the truth. And that's what makes it so hard to construct a narrative, right? Because you can't choose where it goes. You can't choose its dimensions. And so with this story in particular, it's so multi-layered. It's not straightforward. It doesn't, it goes back and forward in time. And that was just what was presented to me. It's not, you know, um, so it was structurally very, very difficult to figure out how to do it. And I did my best to kind of bring the reader along on this investigation that I was following. So that's what I hope kind of comes across. Yeah, and in a way, it's 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 a bookend to Arendt's Eichmann in Jerusalem, which was the first of these kind of books, a very different kind of book. Uh, how, how do you compare your work with someone like Arendt? I mean, Arendt was such a, I mean, huge influence on me. And of course, I part of the reason I felt an obligation to do this is because I do think that the Zucker's case, as you said, is a bookend to the Eichmann trial. Not only was it one of the same agents that participated in the mission, but also, you know, there's this criminal investigation going on in Riga that is very much a continuation of Eichmann, you know. But unlike the Eichmann trial, which was publicized and known throughout the world, this case is very poorly known. You know, it's really just a domestic issue. And what I wanted to do was bring out the stakes of what is going on. Um And I think they're very much intertwined. And the last thing I will say, which to me meant a lot, was that when the Jewish community of Riga filed their appeal, they found one of the testimonies from the Eichmann trial that mentioned Sukkurs by name and re-brought it up. They re-presented it to the prosecutor in the present. Um, And so if we think about how these trials still have legal weight, there is a perfect illustration. And what do you make of work uh, like um, Dara Horn, uh, her anger at remembering the wrong dead Jews, essentially. Yes. Well, I actually do have a review of Dara Horn's book in the next issue of, or the current issue, rather, of Jewish Currents. And, you know, I think she is struggling there with with this, in some ways, the same question that I am, which is what do we do with these memories that have in some ways... Should we just be remembering Anne Frank? Um, You know, I think... People want stories. Easy memory, comfortable memory, right? Which is what uh, Dara is reminding us of. Right, but I don't think the answer is that we just throw it away. I don't think the answer is that we don't remember Anne Frank. I think it's that we add, you know, and I think that's the most beautiful version that can come out of Horn's book, right? 
we shouldn't subtract because we do need people to know about the dead Jews. We can't just turn away from them. We need to face the realities of what happened to them, but we can complement them with stories of the living as she wants. Well, there you have it. Uh, it is indeed a critical examination of the nature of memory, highly sophisticated, increasingly uh, incredibly important book. Come to this court and cry. Um, Many people will, I think, cry having read the book, How the Holocaust Ends. Of course, it will never end, particularly with books like this. But congratulations. That's the right word, Linda, on this book. It comes of a huge amount of work, of travel, of research, a remarkable achievement. First of many books, I hope. Um, what else should people be reading? Hopefully not just Holocaust books, because that's really too miserable, isn't it? I mean, yes, I did find myself having to take breaks. Um, so, uh, and one of the one of the things that I read during this break is a new book called Bold Ventures, 13 Tales of Architectural Tragedy uh, by a Belgian writer named Charlotte Vandenbroek from Other Press. I thought it was like truly an unusual telling of different ways, different buildings that ruined the people that tried to build them, you know? And uh, the history of, and by the way, um... Your, your website has a, a photo of a, a building on the front. And I was curious, what is this building? For people who are just listening, it's it's the photo on Linda Kinsler's uh, website, lindakinsler.com. What, what is this photo? What is this building, Linda? That is um, from one of my favorite streets in Kiev. I um, lived in Kiev for many years, and uh, I would often pass that building. And I just thought it was such a striking example of the different forms of architecture that meet in that city. You know, you have the neoclassical period from the Ukraine's first period of independence, and then you have Soviet brutalism, and then you have a more modern building from, you know, looks like it's from the 60s or 70s. So it just seemed like all of history condensed. Um, but thank you for calling attention to that. Yeah. And the other thing I've been reading, which I will say, I've been reading a lot of um, fiction and memoir, and I just finished Annie Ernaux's The Years, which is one of these great classics um, that I had never come across before. And I truly think it is one of the most innovative pieces of prose I've ever read. Excellent, Linda. Thank you.